0: Today, we're kind of talking a bit about food, a bit of a weak reason, I know, poor reason. But secondly, and much more importantly, uh, the idea is that there is a right way to do things. There's a right way to do things. Now, at the risk of making massive generalizations, I reckon this idea that there's a right way to do things, uh, at least at some level, sits at odds with the Australian culture. I mean, we're pretty famous as Aussies for being informal, right? for being casual. Um, I remember Hazy telling me one time that he'd, he'd love to uh, wear thongs everywhere, even in the middle of winter. Like just, you know, anywhere he goes, preaching, wedding, you name it, right? Um, we, we Across the world, we're known for our, for our um, use of the English language. We pronounce things much more informally, much more casually, we shorten our words, we don't pronounce every syllable, and we kind of pride ourselves on being a pretty laid-back bunch. And so while we get that there's often a right way to do things, unless it's absolutely necessary, we don't dot every I and we don't cross every T. Now, the idea of getting it right, um, it's kind of been a bit of a theme ...over the last few chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians... ...as we've looked at the last few weeks. Now Paul's really been hammering home to the Corinthian church... ...in this letter that he writes to them... ...that getting it right is absolutely necessary... ...when it comes to worship. Right? Chapters 8-10, to 10, they were all about indulging in idolatry. The Corinthians were participating in these idol feasts... ...and as they were doing that... ...they were compromising their worship of God... ...they were hurting others in the church... Um, he warns them also in chapter 10 that the trajectory, if they were to continue to participate in idolatry in this way, would be kind of like how the Israelites ended up. Right? They perished in the desert. No matter how spiritually blessed they were, which they were, uh, their bodies still ended up being scattered in the wilderness. And so worship is a matter of life and death. You have to get this right. The tone of Paul's words up to this point have therefore been pretty strong. And he's rebuked how the Corinthians have worshipped God. And so as we come this week to chapter 11, uh, in verse 17, the first thing he says is this. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. Right? In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Right? Because there is a right practice in worship. He's going to continue. He's going to say pretty strong phrases. Right? Phrases like, um, your meetings, they do more harm than good. That you despise the church of God. That you drink judgment on yourself. Strong stuff. So before we dive into the text, I wonder whether you felt the weight of phrases like that. Maybe you looked at it this week in your community group. I want you to think, if the Apostle Paul walked in right now and he looked at our gathering here and he said, Southwest Evangelical Church, Bankstown, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. Your meetings, your gatherings, they do more harm than good. You despise the church of God, Southwest Bank, Evangelical Church Banks and you drink judgment on yourself. And he's talking about all of this in the context of what we do every fortnight, pretty much. Partaking in the Lord's Supper. Now, I hope you're wondering, what exactly did the Corinthian church do? And just as importantly, whether we at our church here in Bankstown in Sydney, whether we might possibly be doing the same thing. Are we getting worship of God right? And I hope we're desiring to look carefully at what Paul is saying so that we examine ourselves and so we examine our church as well. So, why don't you pray with me? And then we'll get into the text. Father God, we thank you for um, the privilege that it is uh, to be in your word, to hear you speak, uh, and perhaps hear words that might be a bit familiar to us, that we hear it pretty often, uh, at least parts of this passage anyway. And so, Father, I ask that you be speaking uh, clearly to us this evening, um, that we might hear things afresh for those of us who have grow numb uh, to the words in this passage and that you might change hearts and lives uh, this evening and use me as we do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's get off that. First point, the problem at the Lord's Supper. So, what is going on for the church at Corinth? Now, that's probably the natural next question. So, uh, what's going on? Um, Paul points out in verse 18, have a look, uh, verse 18, that when the Corinthian church gather, there are divisions among them. There are divisions among them. Now, if you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, that's probably as obvious as saying that there are divisions in our liberal and national party at the moment. Uh, there are heaps of divisions, heaps. Um, across the book, right at the beginning from chapter 1, we saw that there were some that said they followed Paul. Right? Others said that they followed Apollos. There were divisions within the church with the leaders in the church that people were fanboying with and preferred. There were also divisions with the church, as Paul writes to the church, about potential lawsuits that were happening between them. Even in the last few weeks, we've seen divisions between some believers being spiritually wounded and destroyed by other believers. Because they put their rights ahead of considering others. And that's just to name a few. Right? So divisions are happening. But Paul, he isn't referring to any of those particular divisions, as terrible as they are. He's referring to divisions, um, nor is he referring to divisions, rather, that is expected in every church. He kind of touches on that in verses 18 and 19, I think. All right? Paul is referring to yet another way the church has divided itself. Um, and this division has kind of led to the point that Paul will conclude in verse 20, so then when you come together... It's not the Lord's Supper you eat. Right? And so even when the Corinthian church are meeting and gathering specifically to have the Lord's Supper, right, Paul sees that whatever this specific act of divisiveness is, it's so harmful that their supper in his mind has no resemblance with the Lord's Supper. It'd be like if Paul again were to visit our church and saw our gatherings and say, when you come together... God isn't worshipped and honoured whatsoever, right? This is a slap in the face. So what's the Corinthians... What, what are they doing? What are they doing that causes this division? Well, I think that's where we have to dig a little bit historically. You see, um, unlike how we do the Lord's Supper when we have it, um, the Lord's Supper back then in the first century was a, a bit different. They celebrated it as part of a larger meal, right? So if you're new to church and if you are, warm welcome to you... Uh, the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion, the Eucharist in other traditions, uh, is a meal that was started by Jesus and is celebrated with two elements, the bread and the cup of wine or here for child-friendly purposes, juice. Uh, back in the first century, though, like I said, it's a bit different. They would have had the bread element first. They would have had the cup element. But in between, they would have this enormous meal, this BYO meal. Um, but unlike us, we get, we get to gather in a, in, a, in a public building such as this, Uh, they would have had to meet in a home, a home of a a believer. Uh, And a a home of a believer, if someone owned a home, they were pretty wealthy, right? And so hopefully, using all this kind of historical info, Paul's remarks in verses 21 about there's one that remains hungry, yet there's another that gets drunk. In verse 22, uh, they're humiliating those who have nothing in contrast to those who have homes to eat and drink in. Starts, now starts to give some shape as to what's going on. See, friends, what's going on is that there's a division of class. Right? A division of class from those who have much financially to those who have little. This particular church in Corinth, as we've seen throughout the letter, um, they, in, in many ways, were identical to the world around them. They valued what the world valued It stratified itself by wealth, class, social standing, and the church organized itself in the same way. And this appalls Paul. In fact, most of the letter we're reading is speaking directly against that. So how precisely um, did the Corinthian church divide itself by class? Uh, Again, this is a bit tricky to know because we're literally reading one side of the conversation. Um, Paul is writing in regards to something and we don't know what that is we don't have that all we've got is what paul's writing and so from the hints that we get in these few verses the class division seems to be happening when they were physically together right in verse 18 and when they were actually eating in verse 21 and so i'm convinced that what is happening here is that while they are together after they've had the bread The wealthier members of the Corinthian church would then get stuck into eating premium grade A5 marbled wagyu beef, while the poor would be sucking any meat that was left off an offcut. And then they'd finish the gathering together by taking the cup. Now, it wasn't exactly that, of course, but you get my drift. Depending on their socioeconomic position, the meals that they ate between the bread and the cup were drastically different in both quality and in quantity. And so you see the dilemma, right? At the very same gathering, possibly even at the very same table, you would have the wealthy one eating lavishly with meat and with wine, and the person next to him, perhaps, would have little to nothing, have their little bits of food in humiliation in the presence of the wealthy, and then they would leave hungry. This BYO dinner divided the church. And at surface, right, you don't have to look very deep. There's so much wrong selfishness, table manners, right? But for Paul, this problem goes much deeper. It stems from their understanding of God, their theology, as it so often is. And so it's really unsurprising then uh, that Paul takes his argument back to the very first Lord's Supper. And we'll have to point to, if you've got outlines in front of you, hopefully you picked one on the way in. Um, He goes back to the words of Jesus as he begins this supper for the very first time in order to tackle the problem that he sees. But how does that that help? How does that help in any way? I want to suggest uh, that there are two ways in which it helps. Uh, By going back to the first Lord's Supper, we see that the gospel provides the shape for the Lord's Supper. And then the gospel then sets the stakes for the Lord's Supper, right? Provides a shape, then it sets the stakes for the Lord's Supper. So we'll firstly look at the gospel provides the shape for the Lord's Supper. In particular, we'll look at the unified shape that it gives. Now, part of the problem why we might not see why Jesus' words directly help the situation is because we might be familiar with verses 23 to 25. Um, We read them kind of out every time we take the Lord's Supper together. Um, well, the problem is, though, is that we'll often interpret these verses as individuals. As in, whenever Paul says, you, we will usually take that to be, like, me, as in, dom, me. But actually, whenever Paul uses the word, you, here, it's actually in the plural. So, it's not you individually, it's you all, or you together. And so, let me read out these verses for you again, uh, with this addition in mind. Follow with me from verse 23, verse uh, 23. Actually, I've got it on the screen. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you all. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you all. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you all drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you all eat this bread and you all drink this cup, you all together proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. See what's what's Paul saying here? What's Paul saying about what Jesus said here? He's saying that Jesus it doesn't mean that this is my body broken for you, you individual Christian. He's saying that this is my body given for you, broken for you, for all of you together. See, friends, it's not the individual eating and drinking that proclaims the death of the Lord. It's the eating and drinking together. In unity, that does. Remember earlier that I said that Paul sees a deeper problem, a theological problem in their understanding of God. I hope you're beginning to see that that problem is that the wealthier may be ignorant of, or they've forgotten, the corporateness, the, t- the togetherness, the unity that because of the gospel, now make up their identity as the people of God. See, so many of the problems that Paul has recently addressed kind of suggest that this is the problem, that they did what they pleased as individuals. The fact that Paul in the last chapter had to say things like, sure, you have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. And things like, um, don't seek your own good, but the good of others. Seek the good of the many. This shows that their actions came from thinking only of themselves. Themselves as individuals and what they wanted to do. Rather than thinking of the wider body that they are now a part of. Paul, just in the very next chapter, chapter 12, he's going to spend a a fair bit of time addressing this very fact. That we are one body, made up of many parts. See friends, being saved means that we are not saved to be alone. We are saved and swept up into the community, a family with God as our Father. So I want you to imagine for a moment that um, you met a man who was placing a bet on the outcome of the Bledisloe Cup after church today. You're walking out, we're grabbing dinner, you see somebody uh, making a bet, all well and good, I suppose, and then you find out that he's just placed a bet, uh, a really sizable bet, on Australia. I don't know why you do that but um, but more than that, the bet is so sizable that he drains his entire savings and then drains it so far that it doubles his existing mortgage loan. Now, that's not so well and good, is it? It's actually pretty foolish to do something like that. And then you find out somehow that he has a wife and he has two young kids that have just started school. And his decision and bet has just put their entire livelihoods in jeopardy. Now what he's done definitely isn't well and good. In fact, it's unbelievably selfish, isn't it? Inconsiderate, irresponsible, inconceivable. And I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that I think this is similar to how Paul sees these wealthy Christians in Corinth. He's going, how dare you? at the expense of your own family, act so incredibly selfishly? How dare you act so inconsiderately? How dare you disregard your unity? It is inconceivable what you do. Why? Because of the gospel. You are brothers. You are family. Because of the gospel, you are united. See, that's why he goes back to what Jesus says. Now, before we move on, just a quick word for those of you who today, again, are kind of visiting or you might be investigating Christianity, you're thinking about it further. And I want to say it's, it's a pretty sad fact that so often in the church, um, the church really, uh, to, to borrow a metaphor from, from somebody I heard, is, is quite out of tune with the melody of the gospel we believe in. And you might even be surprised as we read a passage like this in Scripture that something so condemning, so divisive, is even in the Bible to begin with. But if that's you, if you're, if you're checking out Christianity for the first time, my hope for you is, is kind of twofold. My first hope is that you examine the actual gospel, not our often uh, out-of-tune rendition of it. Right? Look at Jesus, look at His example, His words, His actions, His sacrifice. Ask questions about Him. Wrestle with that first and foremost. But my second hope is that you would still hold the bar high for the church. Not a bar that you set for us, though, but the bar that Jesus does. Because chances are His bar is far higher than yours. Because we often stuff it up. But just as Paul turns to the Corinthian church and he turns them back to the gospel as the source for all change in this letter... The gospel is also meant to change our hearts and overflow into all our lives and our actions. And so if you're here visiting, or if you're here checking out the Christian faith, hold the church to the standard that Jesus has set for us. Because we ought to be striving to live more consistently with that. And so we've looked at the unifying shape that the gospel sets as we look back to Jesus' first words. Now we look to the self-sacrificial shape to the Lord's Supper. The self-sacrificial shape. Now, uh, Jesus' body was broken... Um, that's in the element of the bread. Jesus' blood shed symbolized through the element of the cup. You see, at the very heart of what we're going to be uh, participating in after the sermon today is we are commemorating that Jesus died willingly for us, for the Corinthians, and gave everything up for them. And as the Corinthians are gathering and as they're meeting and as they're eating, These wealthy ones are doing the exact opposite, aren't they? They're being gluttonous, they're hoarding, they're inconsiderate, and they're giving up absolutely nothing. See, when we go out to eat, if we go on a diet, for example, or we're deciding what to cook night to night, most of it is concerned about what we'll eat. Now, when we come to the Lord's Supper, that certainly matters. Right? What are we eating? The elements matter. What they symbolize deeply matters to us. But when we come to the Lord's Supper, it's not just what we eat that matters, it's how we eat it. The manner in which we eat it, that matters just as much. See, Paul in verse 26 tells us that whenever we eat the bread and drink the cup, what we are doing is proclaiming the Lord's death until Jesus returns. Each time we have the Lord's Supper, we proclaim Jesus' death. Now what does that mean? What does that mean to proclaim Jesus' death as we, as we take the Lord's Supper? I think it means it's a non-verbal proclaiming. Right? As in the act of taking the Lord's Supper itself, that proclaims the Lord's death. So what it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean the short explanation that Pete or Pete gives before we take the Lord's Supper just to kind of get everyone on the same page and make sure everybody knows what we're doing. It's also not talking about that somehow the Lord's Supper is a really helpful method to do evangelism. It's not saying that. What it is saying is that the manner, right, the, the manner in which we take the Lord's Supper itself, our participation in it, that proclaims the gospel. Not by words, but by action. It's kind of like how we use the saying actions speak louder than words. Hear the act of the Lord's Supper or to non verbally proclaim the gospel loudly and clearly. See, friends, as we come to the Lord's Supper, as we take the bread, as we drink the juice, we proclaim the gospel by participating in a manner that is consistent with the heart and significance of the meal, as unified people, as self-sacrificial people. Why? Because of the gospel. The Corinthians were celebrating the Lord's Supper, but they were doing it individually. They were celebrating, but they were doing it selfishly. And so it's little wonder that Paul describes their gathering resembling so little of the Lord's Supper. At the very heart of the Supper, it's, it's unifying, it's self-sacrificial, and yet they're doing the complete opposite. That's the shape it's meant to take. And as Jesus followers, we need to be reminded of this regularly, I think. Let me read out to you a slide um, that uh, Don Carson, he writes about the church. He writes this what binds us together us as in the church together is not common education it's not common race common income levels common politics common nationality common accents common jobs or anything of the sort christians come together because they have been saved by jesus christ and owe him a common allegiance they have all been loved by Jesus himself. They commit themselves to doing what he says. And he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Right? Read that last line again. Right? We are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That's a big line. And he's right to an extent, isn't he? Church can be made up of social lines and divisions that, in the world, around us, rarely, if at all, mix together. And yet, because of Christ, we are unified and we are called to sacrifice. And yet, this collides, I think, head-on. It collides head-on with a consumer mentality that we increasingly see in the church, in our church as well. We might come to church, for example, purely for our validation. Maybe for our inspiration, maybe just for our benefit. We might have come in pursuit of an ideal. We might not know that we might know at one level that there's no perfect church in our heads, and yet we still dream, and yet we still visit churches as if there might be. We might keep one foot at the door, even after we've committed to a church. We might subtly and quietly think uh, in our own hearts, "What's in this for me?" We keep a lookout, maybe, for better preaching, better community, better music, better Sunday school, and so on and so forth. Now, don't get me wrong. There are good reasons to move elsewhere. But my point is simply this. The unifying and self-sacrifice that we see in the gospel and that we commemorate as we take this Lord's Supper, that flies in the face of consumerism. And so I wonder whether you have a temptation to view church in this way. because the gospel speaks very strongly against it. We'll secondly look at how the gospel not just produces the shape for the Lord's Supper, but then how it then sets the stakes for it as well. Now, we're looking at the rest of the verses uh, in the chapter here. Now, if you looked at this passage at your uh, community groups this week, you probably have had a few questions here, uh, because the consequences seem to be confusing and maybe even a bit too strong. Uh And for the sake of time, we won't go through every verse, but essentially Paul, uh, in verse 29, he describes the Corinthians as those um, who have drunk judgment on themselves. Uh, In verse 30, Paul ties their malpractice of the Lord's Supper with the fact that real harm has come upon some of them, right? Some Some are now weak. Some are sick. In fact, he says many are now weak and many are sick. And some have fallen asleep. Now, they haven't fallen asleep because they're bored or anything like that. They've fallen asleep. That, that's a reference to people physically dying. People they know that have physically died. See, Paul's talking about physical illness, physical weakness, physical death. And Paul says in verse 31 that the cause of this that's not random. The cause is the discipline and, sorry, the reason is the discipline and judgment of God for their male practice as they come and as they participate in the Lord's Supper. And so what are we to make of all of this? How do we even begin to process this, right? Do we even have a category to think about it? How does this shape our practice as we come to the Lord's Supper, even today? Um, Let me start by saying this. What I think this ought to tell us, what I believe this ought to tell us clearly is that God loves his church deeply and profoundly deeply and profoundly and lord's supper is is a tangible physical experiential reminder and sign to god's people of how much god loves his church i want you for a second just to look around the room seriously have a look turn back turn sideways if you're facing a wall don't look that way look inward to people um, what do you see You might answer there are men, women, married, single, separated, widowed, people from different countries, backgrounds, cultures. Some might be more educated, others not so much. Some with good health, others struggling. What does God see though when He looks around the room? God sees His beloved people. His church. Those dearly loved by Him who made everything who He has made every effort to pursue in order that they might enjoy access and relationship with Him. He sees a people that He sacrificially gave Himself up for. He, He sees us unified in Christ. See, friends, if we begin to see verses 27 to 34 from the perspective of how deeply God's love is for His church that Jesus would go all the way to the cross in her place and die for her, is at the very least understandable, as troubling as everything is here, why there might be dire consequences and even discipline for those within the church that cause harm to the very people God so deeply cherishes. And so what are we to make of this? What are we meant to make of this seriousness, this warning? Well, I think as readers... In the 21st century, we need to be careful not to over-apply what we read. This isn't saying that all physical death, sickness and weakness, come as a result of church division. Right? That, that just wouldn't be true, would it? Right? That, that that would be the case? Neither is this passage giving any evidence that God's discipline and judgment falls only on those who have abused the Lord's Supper. There's no evidence of a one-to-one judgment, like, I approached it wrongly, so I'm the one who gets judged. We we don't see that. We don't know. So, we can't go that far. We also can't go so far as to definitively say that those that divide um, God's church and abuse the Lord's Supper will come under judgment in this present life, definitively. I think that, again, is taking it too far, but what we can say is that if discipline and judgment In the present life does occur to believers, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. See, if God deeply loves His church and will discipline those who are harming it, especially those who know better, why should we be surprised? And while in verse 32, God doesn't go so far as to remove salvation, the threat of divine judgment is real and it's a real warning for us. Nope, gone. Maybe next slide. So, what now? Right? how does this how does this impact how we do the Lord's Supper? What does this change? What about us? Um I kind of want to firstly ask have we have we even solved it? Have we have we solved this problem? Because the issue, right, if you remember, the, the issue was that Uh, They took the bread, they had the cup, and the the issue was in the meal, in the middle. That's where they were gluttonous. That's where they were selfish. And we've got rid of that at our church. Like, all we kind of have is a bit of flatbread and and a shot of Ribena, right? If you can try and get drunk and full on that, but I, I doubt you'll get very far. You can try. So, have we solved it? Well, the answer's no, isn't it? Because although our meal looks very different, the heart of the matter is that there, is, uh, an, uh, there, was an, uh, there was an unwillingness to consider other members in church in a context that celebrated the selfless sacrifice of Jesus. And as we've seen right through this book, and perhaps you felt a tugging even in your own heart, this attitude can plague our churches, can't it? And so I've got some questions for you, church, just to consider. When you come forward, when you take the bread and when you take the the cup, the juice, are you mindful of the wider body that you're a part of? Do you even think about that at all? Do you celebrate the Lord's forgiveness while harboring unforgiveness towards others? In this church, in our church, Are you harboring unforgiveness there? Are you deliberately harboring or maybe even encouraging division? Actively, passively, maybe through gossip? Are you unwilling to live out the implications of the gospel when it impinges on your personal freedoms? Your preferences, your money, your career, your time. Maybe taking responsibility that requires a bit of sacrifice. These are far from exhaustive questions and I'll leave it up there for you. But this is the sort of self-examination and discernment that Paul encourages the Corinthians and by extension to us to do in verses 28 to 29. That's what he's talking about. We equally have to lean into the very same unifying yet self-sacrificial gospel that saved us and heed the warnings from this passage. See, self-examining, it doesn't mean that people who are seekers, people who haven't yet become Christians, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't take the Lord's Sabbath because they're drinking judgment on themselves somehow. Maybe you've heard that said before. But that seems pretty unlikely, doesn't it? Because Paul here, who's he talking to? He's talking to believers. Neither does it mean that you kind of need to reach this state um, in your self-examination, this this level, this state of self-introspection, and confession before you somehow are worthy to take the lord's supper that that's what it means to be worthy to eat and drink it that's what it means to have it, t- take it in a worthy manner maybe that's been your experience if you've grown up in the church you've heard it being spoken of that way i certainly have that's how i've heard it that's how i've understood it but i don't think that is true because if there's a rightness i think in coming to the lord's supper feeling unworthy There's a rightness to that, to come to the Lord's Supper feeling unworthy. If all we did was come to the bread and cup when we felt worthy and up to it, (coughs) this would never be touched. Paul isn't instructing that we need to be worthy, but that our eating and our drinking needs to be worthy. But also, as we've seen, the unworthy manner that Paul's talking about here, it's not not an inward self-reflection on on who I am, it's that the Corinthians haven't discerned the wider body, the brothers and sisters, and by doing that have divided and despised the Church of God. This has been, a challenging, uh, this has been challenging for me this week. Um, I messaged a number of you actually throughout the week uh, just to ask whether you could share some causes and reasons for divisions that you've had sadly in previous churches that have led to breakdowns, whether significant or not so significant. And the reason I did that was I wanted to encourage us to be wary and to be sensitive as to whether we are on a similar trajectory, whether we are maybe participating in that and to urge us, if we are, to to think seriously about the warnings that we see. And while some of the responses I saw, and, and thank you for those who replied, certainly leads me to ask that, Are you? Those sorts of questions. What's going on? Are you promoting division division in our church? I would say that 80% of the responses talking about division began at the leadership level. 80%. And that's confronting. That's confronting because it's made me stop and think, Dom, if you were causing division at our church whether it's accidental or deliberate, if you wronged somebody, if if forgiveness was required, what, what would you do? Do you care enough about honoring Jesus and living out the gospel that you would be willing to do everything in your power to seek forgiveness, to seek reconciliation? Would you even be willing to let the bread and cup pass you by in order to repent? to seek out reconciliation first, would you heed the warning that's here? And I kept thinking, man, how bad would that look if, if if I didn't take the bread and the cup? That would look terrible. But that's the application, isn't it? That's where the rubber hits the road. And so if you are an elder, if you were a deacon, if you were a leader in our church in any capacity, and if you're a pastor, know that God has given you a tremendous privilege to serve His people, which means that we have tremendous potential to also hurt His people, His beloved people, His church. And while the Lord's Supper is God's gift to us, if this passage tells us anything, it's that it's far more important to take the bread and cup in a worthy manner, consistent with the gospel that has saved us, it's not just something we do because we just have to do it. Or it's in some way like a law imposed on us that we have to do. We do it because it's consistent with what we believe. Would you hear the warning? Get the band to come up. I'm going to sing a song before responding by actually taking the Lord's Supper. And it couldn't have been a more fitting week to do it. But I want to say before we sing, for many of you today, a good response might might be to reflect on the gospel. Reflect on Jesus' death for you, the relationship to Him that He's won for you, the extravagant love that He pours out on you, the family and the community that He's brought you into. Savor that. But I also think for, for others here, a good response might actually be to let the bread and cup pass you by and instead repent. Maybe even initiate reconciliation. Maybe walk across the room if you need to speak with somebody. Maybe speak afterwards. Or if they're not here, maybe to initiate that conversation by message. If you are, if you are having division with people in our church, I urge you to do that. Let the bread and cup pass you by. I get that reconciliation is often a two-way street. Right? Uh, but the question is whether you are actually willing to do all that you can to make forgiveness and reconciliation happen. And so, church, would the gospel shape our motivation to live out the unity we already share and push us towards self-sacrifice as Jesus did? The stakes are high. And so on that note, let's stand and let's sing.